Who do you say Jesus Christ is? Before you contemplate your answer to that question in words, think about how you answer that with your life. Who do you say Jesus Christ is? It's always our privilege to study of the Word of God together, and so I'll ask you to take your Bibles with me and open them to our study of the Gospel of Luke. We are studying this wonderful Gospel, and we're currently here in chapter 9, Luke chapter 9, in the section in verses 18 through 20. Seven. And I want to read this section for us as we begin our time this morning, so that we have it clearly again in our minds. Luke says, And it happened that while he, that is Jesus, was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he questioned them, saying, Who do the people say that I am? And they answered and said, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others that one of the prophets of old has risen again. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. But he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And he was saying to them all, anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake He is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited, he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Let's pray once again. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the clarity of it, for the directness of it, for the way it challenges our hearts, not simply intellectually in our minds, but our outworking, the implications that work out in our lives. We thank you for that. We ask you to use it to grow us in Christ's likeness, to make us like your son, to cause our lives to reflect the very things that we say so that you might be seen in us and glorified by us and by those in our midst. We ask this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. This passage gets right to the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. That was really the essence behind the question that I began with. It gets down here to the nitty-gritty of what it looks like in the life of anyone who professes 
that Jesus is the Christ. You remember from our last time together, we began to ask and answer the question, how do we know if we have answered correctly that most important question in all of life? How do we know? And that question was stated, as I mentioned it earlier, back in verse 20. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Of course, the crowds had their own opinions. Opinions are very cheap. Everybody has one. The Jewish leadership had already given their wrong and eternally damning assessment of Jesus Christ. They said he was a worker of Satan, that he was of Beelzebul, that he was doing the things he did because he was in cohorts with Satan himself. But now Jesus wants to hear from those who are following him. Of course, those who don't follow Jesus, those who don't even acknowledge Jesus have made their choice. They have set their course. Their way to eternal hell is rapidly moving on. And unless they would acknowledge Jesus Christ as their Savior, they will end up in that very place judicially by the righteousness of God. But there are many who say they follow Him. And there were many in the crowd who were following Jesus, both by way of physical proximity and even those who were saying with words, I follow Him as my Messiah. And so Jesus asked that pertinent question, but who do you say that I am? Pointed it at the apostles, the 12 disciples who were with him, but you notice he turns to all the people and makes certainly the reality clear. The implications of their answer would have consequences on not only their current life, but as well as reflect their life eternally. If we give the wrong answer, if they themselves give the wrong answer, all that will await them is a life lived for self and an eternity of punishment in hell. That's what awaits. But if if the answer is correct then their life eternally is secure and proof of that is in a heart reality that is shown in a life that's reflected in following Jesus Christ. In other words, they begin to live according to their profession. We have little funny idiosyncrasies and sayings in our day in which we say things like, if you're going to talk the talk, walk the walk. Well, there's some truth to that. It would be inescapable if it's true in the heart. Words are cheap. But if we say we have genuine belief, then that genuine belief is reflected in the heart of one's life. So when that same question is posed to us today in this way, who do you say Jesus is? And we give the answer that the disciples give here, you are the Christ of God. How do we know if we've passed the test? How do we know if we've got the answer 
right. We know by the reflective proof in our life. Last Lord's Day, we learned that the first proof is that we set our minds on God's interests and not on man's interests. We saw that in Mark's Gospel as he records this same account there in his Gospel account of the life of Jesus. And in that accounting, Jesus says to Peter, who is opposing him, by saying, no, no, that's not going to happen because Jesus says the Son of Man must suffer many things, just like he says here in verse 22. Peter says that's not going to happen. Suffering's not going to happen. Rejecting is not going to happen. Death certainly isn't going to happen. And Jesus tells him to get behind him. He's doing the work of Satan. He is acting like Satan acts. He says in Mark 8.33, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Those are severe words. That is a serious rebuke. And it was easy for the disciples and for us to fall prey to the trap of seeking our own plan rather than God's plan. It's easy. It's easy for us to give into the temptation as even professors of Jesus Christ to try to convince God that our plan for life is the way that God should go. That the way God ought to do things is the way we've planned it. That whatever God has planned is not how it should go, it's how we think it should go. It's easy for us to fall into that temptation and trust our own plan rather than trust the plan of God. This is true whether we're Christians or non-Christians who profess something about Jesus. Because there are many so-called Christians today who claim that Jesus is the Christ, but they do not embrace Him as the Christ. They do not embrace Him as the one upon whom they trust for their salvation. They try to gain acceptance in the eyes of God through all kinds of man-made activities, all kinds of religious duties, rituals that are man's plans, but they are not God's plans. Man, in himself, he tries to continuously appease his own guilty conscience. And he does that for a time because sin is always acting and sin is always carrying itself out. And so he he tries by way of his duty and by way of his religious activity to try to tamp down his guilty conscience only until the next time the guilt of his sin begins to scream loud. And so he attempts again to silence it through some other religious activity week after week after week. God's plan for salvation is through Jesus Christ alone. God's plan for salvation is through entrusting oneself to Christ alone. It's following His plan. It's not following a plan made by us. Why? Because there is no other way. And those who are truly professing Jesus is the Christ, 
show it in a life that is characterized by following God's plan and not man's plan. The disciples wanted the kingdom of Christ to rule on earth right now. That's what they wanted. They wanted the oppression of the government that they were under to end. Sounds like some kind of reconstructionism nationally like seems to be going on in evangelicalism in our day. This idea that we're going to usher in somehow the kingdom of God here in America through righteous deeds. The view of the Messiah was one of political, social reform. That's what we see even today in many areas of evangelicalism. And so here is Peter, spokesman for them all, rebuking Jesus, saying that he, Jesus is saying he must suffer, he must die, he must be rejected, and Peter saying, oh no, that's not happening. No, no. He didn't want that. Why? It's not according to his plan. But it had to happen if redemption was to happen at all for all who would ever believe. All that Christ went through was a must. And so Jesus says to them all, in essence, if you believe that I am the Christ, if you truly believe that, in the other Gospels it says, and Jesus said to Peter, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. It was my Father in heaven who made you aware of that. In other words, you can't come to that knowledge on your own. It's just mere words if you say it any other way. If it's a true understanding, God's the one who opened your eyes to that. And if you believe truly that I am the Christ, then show it by living according to God's plan, not your own. And so we ask the question. Not simply how you would answer with words, who is the Christ? Or who is Jesus? But what is your life characterized by? If you give the answer, you are the Christ of God. And what is your life characterized by? Is it God's plan or is it your plan? You see, we answer the question with these words, He is the Christ. Every Christian who has read their Bible would answer with those words, and yet He is the Son of the living God. He is that. But if our life is characterized not by following Him, but following our own plan, then we have to be questioning whether we truly believe our answer. That's the essence of the question. For whom do you live? Really, that's the question here. Who do you say that I am? Really, whom do you live for, Peter? Are you living for you or are you going to live for me? Jesus isn't talking about perfection. He isn't talking about, hey, listen, you'll never fail if you give the right answer. He's not talking about that in the here and now. We know that Peter fails miserably. What he's talking about is the character of the heart. Are we characterized as those who desire to willingly follow Jesus? And when we understand that, we confess it, 
And when we're not living like that, we confess it, repent of it, and turn to follow Christ. This is the essence of the question. So proof number one for passing the test, we saw last time, was just simply following the plan of God, not the plan of man. Jesus elaborates further on this for us as he goes down speaking to the disciples. And we get three more proofs in this text. And then he follows that with three reasons why it makes perfect sense to follow Christ. Three proofs and then three reasons. Jesus says in verse 23, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. You notice the carryover of the reality of an absolute. Jesus must suffer. He must be rejected. He must die. He will be and was raised on the third day. And if anyone comes after me, he must deny himself. The second proof of passing the test is self-denial. Self-denial. What's he talking about? He's speaking about the attitude of those who come to Christ. The attitude of those who are true followers of Jesus Christ. This is to be the attitude of anyone who truly proclaims that Jesus is the Christ. It's an attitude of self-denial. If anyone desires to come after me, that simply means if anyone who says they are a Christ follower, this is where it starts. If you say you're a Christ follower, if the words from your mouth are, I believe Jesus Christ is who He says He is, I believe in Him, then this is where the following of Christ begins in practical reality. It is reflected in your life by a life of denying self. Word deny is a wonderful, wonderful word. It means to disown, disown, or to, to renounce a claim to yourself. In other words, Jesus is saying, let him, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be a follower of mine, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must disown himself. Let him give up ownership of himself. We could translate it this way. Let him refuse any association or companionship with himself in any way. You say, well, that's hard for us to do. That's hard for us to do. You say, why? Well, because in a practical sense, I'm always with me. How do I get rid of me? Me is always with me. I'm always here. I can't ever get a minute away from me. So it's hard to refuse companionship with me. And yet Jesus is saying that if we confess Him as Christ and it to be true of us, then we have come to the point, we have to come to the point and realize where we reject our own self-sufficiency. That's what we're rejecting. No companionship with the reality that I'm sufficient in myself. And salvation certainly is that. We have no capacity to save ourselves. 
We have to first come to that place where we understand that we on our own have no capacity, no ability to be what God wants us to be. Nothing in us attracts us to God. Nothing in us pursues after God. Anything in us as believers that pursues after God is the outworking of the reality of the Spirit of God in those who have denied themselves. We get no credit. We have to understand that we have no ability to be anything good at all before God. In our natural fallen state, before we come to Christ, we all believe that we are good enough to stand in the presence of God. That is the the context, that is the, the conviction of an unsaved heart. I am okay. I'm good. I've got what I need. I'm righteous. I look out over the sea of humanity and I look at my life and I realize everybody else is a whole lot worse than me. I'm good. Oh, maybe I'm worse than a few people. Maybe there are some quote-unquote in my mind as the world has perpetuated saints out there in the Catholic idea of saints, but, but I'm not as bad as the lowest guy and as long as I can beat one, I will get in safe. We're pretty good people if we just don't do the big sins. If I don't murder, if I don't steal, if I make sure I pay my taxes, go to church. All of that makes me a good person. At least that's what my heart tells me. Jesus says, no, no. You've got to deny all that. If anyone wishes to come after me, He must deny himself. And this denial has nothing to do with stuff. It doesn't have anything to do with all that you've accumulated this side of heaven. It has to do with your heart attitude. It has to do with how you think about you. In fact, in order to come to Jesus, you must affirm that there is in your flesh, as Romans 7.18 says, no good thing. No good thing. There are at least two truths about all humanity, beloved. We cannot please God in the flesh. It's an impossibility. Man cannot please God. In fact, he is hostile toward God, it says in the Scriptures. And we cannot redeem ourselves by the actions of the flesh. Since we cannot please God in the flesh, how in the world can mankind redeem himself by the deeds of the flesh which cannot please God? There is no way. And so answering the question rightly here means that in our lives there is in our flesh a selfish perspective. It's a willingness to say and believe that I'm good enough with God, and yet Jesus comes along and says, listen, if you're going to answer the question rightly, then your life must reflect the reality that there is a willingness and a belief in you that there is nothing good in you before God. Those are difficult words. Difficult words when the ears of the 
apostles, difficult words in our day. Why? Because that is not what we are told. That's not what the world teaches. The love yourself promoters of today certainly don't say this. The self-esteemed advocates of our day certainly don't say this to themselves or about themselves. In fact, what is said today is that you better build up the self-love quotient in people. You have to affirm people's self-love. You have to affirm their idea of themselves. And yet here is God giving us the opposite message. Why? Because the more you love yourself, the less you will believe you need a Savior. The more you are satisfied with you, the less you will believe that you need the grace of God. Only the desperate come to God. One commentator that I was reading put it this way. I think it's helpful. I think it's helpful. He said, quote, The proud sinner wants Christ and his pleasure. He wants Christ and his covetousness. He desires Christ and his immorality. But you don't get him on those terms. But once you come to Christ, Jesus is saying that self-denial becomes the way of life for you. Unquote. Noted author A.W. Pink made this comment, quote, growth in grace is growth downward. It's the forming of a lower estimate of ourselves. It is a deepening realization of our nothingness. It's a heartfelt recognition that we are not worthy of the least of God's mercies. That's self-denial. We're not worthy of the very smallest of any of God's mercies. The more we are comfortable in our own plan, the less we need God's plan. And if we are one who is giving the right words to the question, who is Jesus? But our life is not characterized by a willingness of self-denial, then we show ourselves to not have passed the test. Apostle John said it in his first epistle, if we say we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and the truth isn't in it. Proof number one, follow God's plan, not man's plan. Proof number two, relinquish and renounce any claim on your own life. Proof number three, be willing to suffer persecution if God so wills it. He was saying to them all, verse 23, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily. Dying to self is one of the proofs of following Jesus Christ. Taking up the cross is another proof. You say cross. What's what's the cross he's speaking about? There's all kinds of bizarre things that are out there concerning 
the cross that he's talking about. Some have come up with some really crazy things. I, I mean, the list seems endless. I didn't feel it profitable just to throw those out there. But I don't believe it's difficult to understand when you really think about what Jesus is saying and to whom he is saying it. These are men who lived under Roman rule. The Romans were known for their cruelty, particularly when it came to crucifixion. Crucifixion flourished under the Roman Empire. There was no punishment so torturous as crucifixion. In fact, one historian of the time said that under the Roman Empire, there was estimated to be some 30,000 crucifixions just in the time of Jesus. 30,000. We know when Jesus was crucified, there were at least two others with him. That was a, a regular occurrence. And so the disciples would have a clear understanding of what Jesus meant by the word cross. He said, take up your cross. And so what would have gone immediately through their minds is all of the condemned people who were marching along a road with at least the crossbeam of the cross attached to their shoulders to the place where they would, in a short order, give their life. And so the cross was an instrument of death. To speak of the cross was to speak of death. It was to speak of dying. And so to the disciples, that's what the cross meant. You willingly embracing potential death. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must willingly face or potentially face the reality of potential death. And listen, in essence, that is what Jesus is saying to all of us who believe upon him. You follow me? Really? You want to follow me? Well, it might cost you your very physical life. He already said deny self, renounce ownership on self. So so the very essence of how you think of yourself is a death in itself. But it might cost you your physical life as well. If you're going to acknowledge me as the Christ, if you desire to follow me, then you have to understand that following me is as if you are putting on the instrument of death and shame. You're strapping it to your back. To follow me is to follow death. This is how it will be in your life. I love when evangelicals say, oh, God has a great plan for your life. They'd never say that with a cross attached to their back. No one would have shouted to Jesus, hey, just believe in God. He's got a great plan for your life. He's marching to Calvary. Sure, not all of us will literally die for our faith. But we will bear criticism. You will be ridiculed if you live for Christ. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. As he's about to embark upon the ministry in verse 12, he says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus not might be persecuted, but will be persecuted. It's inevitable. So it means that when you come to Jesus Christ, when you embrace Jesus Christ, it means that when you truly mean the words, you are the Christ, that you are willing to suffer the indignities of of a condemned criminal in this life in service to Christ, if God so deems it so. 
in our American society, that kind of outward persecution isn't so obvious. It's becoming more so. But today in America, not many, if any, are being martyred for Christ. Criticism seems to be ramping up a bit, but it isn't at any place that we've seen. And in fact, if anything, over the last three years showed us that the Christian church is very weak when it comes to trusting in God when He brings trouble in our life. We ran shamelessly like scared little children because God had allowed some kind of sickness upon us. But if you walk in total devotion to Jesus Christ, you may see some kind of ridicule. Self-denial, taking up the cross, means that you will walk after Jesus Christ. I will identify myself with Christ. I will name His name up to and including the point of death. You see, I hope, I hope we're here this morning and we're grasping the reality that we, we can't just say words and assume we've passed the test. Words are easy. Words are cheap. Those who come to Jesus Christ, those who truly pass the test, must come on Jesus' terms. We have to have the definition that Jesus uses. We don't get the option to just say words. We don't get the option to sign a card, drop it in the offering plate and say, hey, I'm a saved, I'm believed now, raise our hand and everybody claps. Come to church more often, increase your giving. Whatever we like to do to think that we're earning something, we don't get that in the words of Jesus. There's no justification before God for those things. No, we have to come to Christ on His terms. And that means we must willing to come to the end of ourselves, desire the precious gift of salvation that only He offers, that brings upon us a willingness to suffer in our very life because of our relationship with Him. So the cross is the suffering because of our faithful connection with Jesus Christ. And by the way, notice, notice here in the text that Jesus adds that little adverb, Daily. And take up his cross daily. It's not a one-time occurrence. It's not a one-time occurrence. Suffering and persecution is the way of life for the Christian. It's continuous. It's every day, all days, that God allows us to be here. So how do we know if we pass the test? Proof number one, follow God's plan, not man's. Proof number two, willingly renounce your claim on yourself. Three, be willing to suffer persecution as God allows. Number four, willingly obey Christ. Notice the last little phrase in verse 23, and follow me. That's just a simple principle to be characterized by a life of obedience. It makes no sense if you deny yourself, if you say you have this cross upon you, but you don't follow Christ. That's worthless. Obedience becomes a way of life for those who truly say that Jesus is the Christ. 
We could say it this way. It is a life that is characterized by a submission, a submissiveness to the Lordship of Christ. And that becomes the pattern of living. So if we say we belong to Jesus, as John says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, then we ought to walk as He walked. In other words, put our feet of obedience in His footprints of obedience and be loyal to His will. So those who have passed the test are marked by this willingness to follow God's plan, a willingness to deny self, a willingness to suffer on behalf of Christ, a willingness to obey loyally. Now there may be some here who say, wow, that's a, that's a really high cost. I'm not sure it's worth it. I'm not sure the investment's worth the end. Well, let me show you quickly why it's worth it. First, first, because of the paradox of losing and saving. Notice verse 24, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he's the one who will save it. This is the paradox of losing and saving. In other words, whoever lives only to preserve his life here and now in the temporary realm, this physical realm, whoever works to preserve that, whoever lives to preserve his ease, his comfort, his self-indulgence, whoever lives with that as the, the, the main reality of life, whoever thinks in those things and that there is eternal life, guess what? You lose spiritual eternal life soul. You've lost. You've already lost. But whoever's willing to give up his hold on his earthly physical life, whoever is willing to deny himself, bear his cross, follow in obedience to the Lordship of Christ, he's the one who has a life that's saved. So it is worth it. It's worth it because to save this life now equals eternal loss. But if you turn your back on the false promises of this life, relinquish yourself to Jesus Christ, then you receive eternal life. So it's worth it because of the paradox of losing and saving. But secondly, it's worth it because of the principle of worth. Notice verse 25 or what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? See, this is the Lord's profit and loss summary. In other words, put your life and eternal life on the scales. Put them on the eternal scales and see which one has greater worth. In fact, even if the whole world was offered for the soul of one man, even that wouldn't be enough. When someone says, listen, I have enough righteous deeds to get myself in the presence of God, say, really? You couldn't stack up all the world's righteous deeds and still have enough. Even if you had the whole world, it's not enough. What can a man give for his soul? The answer is nothing. He has nothing. 
There's nothing that God will accept. Even if He had the whole world, it's not enough. So try hard as you want. Try hard in this life to buy God's grace. To purchase it through some effort of your own. Through your money, your deeds, whatever it is you do. However the world considers righteous deeds in this world. Try as hard as you want. It still comes up short. Nothing is enough. It's as if you're standing on the edge of the ocean and you're with a a myriad of other people and you, you have greater talents than others. Maybe you're the best runner and best long jumper in all of the world and you get a head start and you run and you jump and you get out in the ocean as far as you can and everybody else fails to flop and fall into the water because they can't jump. Everybody loses. No one jumps across. Even the best of them. You can try as hard as you want. It's not going to be enough. Why? So it's worth it here, Christ says, because Christ is enough. Christ is enough in exchange for the soul. He's saying, if you embrace me as God, I am enough. Embracing Christ is worth it because of the paradox of losing and saving and because of the principle of worth. What man considers worthy before God, God considers worthless. And yet what God considers worthy, His Son, Jesus Christ, is enough to save your soul. And then finally, it's worth it because a time of reckoning is coming, beloved. Verse 26, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. What is Jesus simply saying? He's simply saying this, listen, it's worth it now because I'm coming back. And so the imperative is that you need to embrace Christ now. Today is the day of salvation. If you are ashamed of Him now, in other words, if you say He's Christ of God, but you aren't living in that way, maybe it is you truly don't know God. If there's no repentance in your life, if you don't recognize that, turn from it and begin to walk in obedience, then you were never really one who knew Christ. And the day is coming when Christ is coming and you don't want to be caught up short. If you're ashamed of Him now, which is tantamount to saying He's Christ, but not living for Him, Jesus says, don't have any confidence and I won't be ashamed of you when I come in my glory. Because whoever's ashamed of me, in my words, I'm going to be ashamed. In that great day of Christ's coming, the, the one thing worth having will be the life-giving recognition and smile of Christ on you. That's the only thing worth having. But if you do not bear His marks, then He will say, I never knew you. Depart from me. What is Jesus simply saying? He's saying to all of these disciples, all of these who are following Him, particularly to those who are walking with Him, and remember Judas is in this group. He's saying, listen, you need to look to me. Look to life. Have you passed the test? Because the man who selfishly holds to this life 
whose great concern is this life and its ease and its comforts and its securities, the desire for its prosperity, the desire for self-indulgence in this life, that person, no matter how prosperous they may appear, are eternally bankrupt. But the person who gives his life for Christ, the man who abandons self and willingly embraces Jesus Christ, during all that God allows in him, that person may become poor financially. They may even be a martyr, but they will be a child of the king forever. And their heavenly father will not be ashamed of them. When he comes, he will welcome you into his glory. So how do you answer the question? Have you passed the test? What's your life look like? Not perfect. Before God in Christ, you're already positionally perfect. You can't be more perfect than being in Christ. Because God doesn't look at you, He looks at Christ. But how are you living in righteousness now? Well, let's pray together. Father, we do thank You such a simple section really by way of words and yet so direct at us. Our minds are riveted by these things. Think of Theophilus that Luke was writing to and what he must have thought, what he had heard about Jesus and what Jesus was saying about following him. Serious, serious words. The Lord, help us to live out these things, not live for our plan, but yours, not elevate ourselves, but deny ourselves. Learn to worship you in all things that we do, living an obedient life to you, taking up our cross daily, because we know there's no greater worth than you. You're worth all. So help us by your grace and mercy to live these things out to your glory. Thank you for Christ. Thank you that we have nothing in ourselves. We don't deserve any of the smallest of mercies, and yet you have showered us with mercy. We praise you for that. We ask your blessing upon each and every one here. Those who do not know Christ, Lord, we plead with you to open their hearts and eyes to the sinfulness of their heart that they might turn to Christ. We who know you by faith, may we live more faithfully this day than we did yesterday. Thank you for the Spirit's conviction and his work in our life to grow us into the image of your Son. All to your glory we pray in Christ's name. Amen.